are back and fresh off uh, a few of the holidays. There's still New Year's Eve coming up uh, and New Year's Day coming up. But welcome back to the Shutdown Inning Podcast. I'm Stephen Risotto, and alongside, as always, Tyler Hall. Tyler, how was your Christmas? How was your holiday season? Hey, hey, everybody. Yeah, it was pretty good, man. Got to spend a lot of time with friends and family. And, uh, you know, we made it through. And the little guy's happy with a bunch of gifts. So it was uh, it was a good one. Awesome. And, and we have a special guest today. Do you kind of want to introduce him? Yeah, I'll introduce him. We have uh, Jake McKinley, head baseball coach of the University of Nevada, Reno Wolfpack, uh, the baseball team up there. Uh, Jake, how are you doing? Welcome to the shutdown inning. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and then just a little background for everybody. Uh, Jake and I have known each other for a couple of years. Uh, we date back to 1998 at Ponderosa High School. We met in a Lee Adabit's health class. So that tells you what Jake and I were learning when we first met each other. So uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, kid. Happy to have you on. What were you learning uh, in that class? <laughs> whatever health initiatives were back in 1998, it's totally the same as it is today. <laughs> Definitely. How, how were your holidays? Holidays were good. Um, for the most part, stayed in Reno, made a quick trip over the hill to see my folks and you know, see some family, but it was, it was quick. And I actually had to get back here to, to beat a, a storm over the past, just tis the season, but overall can't complain. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get rolling here and we'll just start from, you know, we want to start from the the beginning. So uh, what are some of your earliest memories of baseball and like when and how did you fall in love with the game? Yeah. So, you know, my first ever uh, T-ball practice, I, was, I remember I was in second grade and um, you know, my, my dad and my older brother would take me to T-ball practice and they put me at first base, um, which like, you know, T-ball, everyone's just trying to pay attention. Um, but actually that one of the first throws that ever came to me at first base, I, I whiffed it and it hit me in the eye. So I got a shiner. So if you ever like see my first T-ball picture, I actually have a black eye. Um, and, and, you know, like young kid getting hit in the face of the baseball, and where like the family said that they were proud is that after it hit me, I went and I grabbed the ball and then threw it. And then I cried, you know, so like <laughs> sequence of events, it wasn't like cry, then throw the ball. It was throw the ball, then cry. Yeah. So maybe that's when they thought uh, there could be something there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's funny. I was just always kind of, a, 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 at least when I was younger, really struggled, especially when you like went from the T to live pitching, really, really struggled. Um, but I have like various points where I would say like, I, I sort of grew into my body. Um, but you know, as a kid, I just, I liked it a lot. It was a way to connect with my dad. Um, you know, and I, I kind of liked football and baseball growing up, but baseball became, you know, I guess my, my primary love over time. And it was probably the thing I was better at. And, and just kind of going up based off of that, like, Give me a scouting report on Jake McKinley. Like, what did you bring to the table as a player? Uh, if you had to kind of, you know, we could even go with the 20 to 80 scale on some of these tools that you had. But but give me kind of an overview of uh, you as a baseball player. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, as a player, we're going to sit around like a, probably a 40. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was a two-way player in college, actually. So, um, I had a lot of power. So, I'd say the power is probably like 50, 55. Uh, but a lot of swing and miss, um, you know, especially once I started seeing like high level breaking balls, high level change ups really gave me problems. High level cutters gave me problems. Um, so if you look back on my career stats as a college hitter, a lot of strikeouts, um, but occasional damage, you know, and that was kind of my game. But uh, I was definitely more valuable on the mound. Um, so fortunately, you know, shoot, three of the four years I was in college, um, I was always in the starting rotation, but three of the four years, I was usually at the, like the top of the rotation. Um, but I threw a split change. Um, so I would say that was like a legit swing and miss pitch. Um, and I could also land it for a strike, but also bury it. Um, so that's the whole reason I would say I had any success in college. I had one really good out pitch velocity wise, like 88 to 90. So not like overpowering by any means, but um, you know, a really, really good swing and miss pitch that was able to carry me to college and a little bit beyond college. And when it was on, uh, I think I was pretty hard to hit. That's awesome. We always ask people about kind of like the teams that they watched and everything and the players that they remember. So what was kind of like your, your relationship with watching baseball and kind of being a baseball fan? And I know Tyler, you know, big giants fan growing up, I big giants fans growing up. 
what was uh what was your where was your allegiance were you a giants fan too were you an a's fan like well what's kind of your background in, in watching baseball and, and some of the players that you watched yeah so i was a mets fan growing up okay uh, oh you know my my dad is big mets fan big jets fan so i was kind of you know you just like raised in it uh so the mets you know it's it's kind of a almost like a laughable organization and just in the sense that like the the hopes are always very very high and you just feel like you know uh you're let down at the end of the year so uh I would say that, that was the case but I will say like being a Mets fan probably is a little easier than being a Jets fan the Mets did have some really good teams so when I really like sunk into being a Mets fan um late junior high early in high school they had like a really, really legit infield there. Um, this might be dating me. Hopefully you remember some of these names, but John Olderwood played first base. Edgardo Alfonso played second. Ray Ordonez played short. Robin Ventura played third. And they were like the best infield defensively in Major League Baseball. Um, and that group also produced a lot offensively. Um, but the Mets made like a really good really good little run like there in the late 90s early 2000s they were they were good just couldn't get it over the hump had the uh, subway series um armando benitez blew a save in game one of the world series pretty devastating but yeah mets fan and you know i would say it has not been as glorious as maybe your guys's experience as giants fans have been um mets haven't won a world series since 86 but you know fortunately they've been twice um since i've been a fan of them and of course, they had Benny Agbayani in the outfield, which we we can't just gloss over. <laughs> That's but. very true. That's very true. Um, and actually, we we've been we had been recruiting Benny Agbayani's son here at Nevada. Um, so Benny Benny came to Reno, and we hung out with Benny. And uh, I I kind of like I kind of teed up a little conversation about the Mets early and. You know, I think he wanted to focus on his kids' visit, but he opened up at dinner and and told us some like really cool Mets stories. But he's a he's a super good dude, and um, you know, I think like really like from a baseball perspective at the time had helped kind of put Hawaii baseball players on the map. Definitely. Um, you know, so obviously now you're you're a coach. I know from our our personal relationship, I know you definitely did the time did your time and put your effort in to get where you are today. But, you know, maybe say pre your time with the Brewers when you're working through, you know, some smaller colleges and some NAIA schools. Uh, tell us a little bit about your early coaching journey. Yeah, for sure. So I got into coaching when I was 21 years old. Um, and and it's I, I've said this on other podcasts before, but like, you know, you, you ask coaches like, why did you get into it or why do you do it? And you you just hear these like wonderfully selfless and beautiful answers of like, I just wanted to give back to the game I love. Um, but for me, I was still playing pro ball. I was an independent ball in Chico and I just needed like a place to train. And so by coaching, you know, you're on a field every day with like other people that play baseball. So it was like a, it was like an easy and efficient way to train. But after doing it for a very short time, I, I kind of realized it was probably what I would do for a career. Um, so I stopped playing in 2007 and took a graduate assistant job at Campbellsville University in Kentucky. Um, and abruptly, I mean, it was, it was December 18th when they offered me the job. Um, and I remember the head coach, he, he called me and he said, Hey, what size shoes do you wear? And I told him 14s and, um, and he ordered me shoes. So at that point I was like, I can't back out. So <laughs> I just like drove across the country to central Kentucky, spent two years there. Um, and then took a volunteer coaching position at West Valley college in California then I volunteered at Sacramento State for for three years. Um, so the fun fact that I, I think a lot of people probably know by now is from ages 21 to 28, I never got paid to coach ever. Um, you know, like little things from camps here and there and lessons and stuff. But I was never a salaried coach uh, until a month before my 29th birthday. Um, then I became the head coach at Menlo College great situation but again you know menlo is in atherton california right by palo alto most expensive zip code in the country at the time and the job paid thirty thousand dollars um so even then like i remember my first paycheck it was 996 dollars, and i felt like i was rich you know um but i was there for four years and you know menlo is a unique situation because there's only two majors really it's business or psychology um, you know, school is extremely expensive 
And so recruiting was, it was tricky, you know, it was tricky to get good players. You kind of had to find diamonds in the rough. You had to find unique situations that fit the school. Um, but we did get good. I mean, we were, we were a top 10 team in the country for, for two years in 2016 and 2017. And um, <clears throat> from there, I ended up taking the head coaching job at William Jessup University, a small NAI school in Rockland, California. Um, and that was a, that was a great deal. Uh, we went from 10 wins to 41 wins. Huge credit to the players on that one, uh, which ultimately led to me getting a position with the Brewers. But, but, you know, when the Brewers first called, I've said this before, like I saw Milwaukee on caller ID and I, I cleared it. I sent it to voicemail because I thought it was spam. Um, and thank God, like it kept calling me and the farm director uh, actually shot me a text message. So that's how it all worked out. And I guess all the rest is history is with the Brewers for four years. And now I'm going into my second year at Nevada, but it's been a journey. Um, there's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs, but you know, it's really cool to get to do what I do. And out of all of that experience, out of all the players that you've seen come through your programs or, you know, even in professional baseball, is there any talent, any player? And this is a loaded question. So feel free to shoot out a few names. Loaded question. Is there any player that stands out that just like stands out above everybody else or maybe a few players that stand out above everybody else in terms of talent and makeup and skill and all of that? Oh, that's such a good, that's a, that's extremely loaded. Loaded. Um, okay. So I'll give you a couple names. Uh, one name that never played pro ball, but he was on baseball tonight. The kid named Brian Fuller out of Campbellsville. So we made it to the NAI world series, my second year there. And this kid threw 21 innings in 24 hours to get us into the world series. He was a senior. Um, he had not started a single game that year, I believe. Um, he was a reliever in his career, and he just like had a superhuman performance. And it was the first time as a coach where I'd ever had a player where I was like seeing something like larger than life, you know. Um, that's one name that sticks out that if you Google it, you'll see the baseball tonight story on him. It was incredible. But again, like unbelievable character, like an unbelievable person, a reliable student, a great teammate, respected teammate. And so I think in coaching, you preach those things a lot, you know, like be a good teammate, be good in the locker room. And so when those guys have those moments, it's really refreshing. But, you know, if we talk specifically on the on the baseball and the talent perspective, obviously coach Reese Hoskins at Sacramento State. Um and you, you know, the crazy thing about Reese, if I remember correctly, we were the only team that offered him in college baseball, the only division one team that, that gave this kid an offer. Uh, I mean, now he's a superstar in the major leagues. He's, you know, a potential 30, 40 home run threat. Um, but to see him evolve, like he didn't start the first two games of his college career. I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't touch the field. Um, and then to see what he became, I think is a, is a pretty remarkable story. And obviously by, the end of it, I mean, it was a, he was a superstar talent. Um, Menlo College, you know, two guys in the big leagues currently from those Menlo teams. So one is Lucas Urseg, pitches out of the bullpen for the A's, was actually drafted in the second round as a third baseman. That's the fun thing. So he converted to pitching. Uh, but he closed for us at Menlo, and he blew the first save of the year that he had to attempt. It was against Chico State, blew one run lead in the ninth, and he literally never allowed a run the rest of the year. Um, and he even started a semifinal game, the conference tournament. Uh, and then a guy named Jason Alexander. He was our Friday guy at Menlo. Um, he actually pitches in the big leagues for the Brewers now. Um, but again, I mean, we were running out a 95, 96 mile an hour turbo sinker uh, strike thrower at Menlo College. I mean, you just, you feel, you, you it felt like a cheat code in game one of every series. Um, so those guys obviously stand out. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, there's so many names, obviously I could list from the Brewers. Um, but I, I would say since I've been here at Nevada, we had a kid last year named Cade Morris who went in the third round, um, you know, and, and last year was a rebuild year, but to see the, the progress he made, you know, going from a guy who had pretty average stuff, like I would honestly say like 30 stuff. And I, I felt like he would, he probably went up like two scout grades. Um, he probably had like 50 stuff. And I think he's going to be a guy that pitches in the big league. So, uh, man, I've, I've had so many good ones over the years um, and, and not all of those guys were at like household programs. And some of those guys, you know, did not enter their college career, you know, ranked in PBR or, uh, you know, were super highly touted recruits, but they kind of turn themselves into that. And, and that's a lot of the lens that I coach through is, is I tell those stories to our players and, you know, like 
smart and hard work can can lead you to those things. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember where you already were you part of the Brewers when because Ursig got drafted by the Brewers, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so did Alexander. Were you with the Brewers when they got drafted, or did you just happen to go to the Brewers and they were already part of the organization? So it's it's funny. So Ursig was already there. Um, so he like beat me there, and and it's ironic when we converted him. So we actually tried to two AM. So he had been a third baseman only, and then we tried to two AM. And I actually met him for breakfast one day in Phoenix and threw the idea out to him. So it was funny, like being his college coach. And then, you know, four years later, I'm throwing this idea. He's in double A or triple A at the time about, about like, hey, you want to try to be a two-way? Um, but here's the crazy thing. So Alexander was actually, he he signed with the Angels out of college, pitched with the Angels for a long time, was a strong like triple A guy. And then he became a free agent. So we... So the Brewers and the Giants were kind of the two teams he was picking between. And I would call Jason because I was working with our front office to like negotiate contracts for this kid, which I never did. They only had me do it because I, of the relationship. But I call Jason and I give him, you know, this financial offer. And then I would hear, you know, the Giants offered him this. I would tell our front office and I go back to Jason. But I, I just found that ironic because I think at Menlo, he was like on 55% or something like that. And I'm offering them like a lot of money, you know, like this is, this is ironic that we were negotiating like scholarship dollars to make your tuition cheaper back in the day. And now I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to compete with the San Francisco giants to get you to come to the brewers. And I'm offering you like money that I can't even fathom. So um, yeah, just a very weird sequence of events with both of those guys. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, we do want to touch on Major League Baseball a little bit. And like you mentioned, you spent some time with the Brewers. You finished there as the vice president of player development, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, so right now we've been, you know, watching the MLB hot stove, you know, all, how free agency is going. And, uh, and so how, you know, most of our listeners, they just think of it as like, oh, just like go sign this guy. What kind of work and preparation is put in from an MLB front office side when they're approaching an off season? Yeah, I mean, you have, it, it's, it's interesting because you have so many different, I would call them verticals or departments that help go into this decision-making, right? You have your people inside of research and development, um, you have your coaches, your people inside of player development. Um, and then you have people on the player personnel side that are really trying to like one identify where's the team strong and where's the team set to be strong for a number of years. Um, but also like where are potential growth areas, where are potential gaps and, you know, how can we strategically fill those? And I think with the Brewers, obviously, like it's not a situation like the Dodgers where it's you can go spend a billion dollars on two free agents. Um, you kind of have to make it work. Um, you have to make less work more, if that makes sense. So um, so it had to be one, like good fit for the organization, good fit in the locker room. Um, it had to be somebody that we we thought like the value, like the, the market value for the player made sense for the organization. And then obviously they would fill a necessary gap, whether that meant um, something we could develop into a trade asset or something that would give us major league depth or, uh, you know, contribute to major league wins. So once you identify those, then it, it kind of goes into that, that process of like, almost like what I was just describing with, with Alexander, it's, you get into some bidding wars, agents get involved. Um, and there's things that happen much above my, my level, um, that I probably never even had eyes on, but I got a little, you know, a little taste of it with Jason. Um, but I, I will say, like, I think that the agents, um, the folks in player personnel, obviously the the GMs and anybody that touches acquisition, it's a really, really collaborative effort, um, you know, not only to make those decisions, but then to negotiate with those athletes and their agents. Yeah. And, and one of the things that like teams are trying to decide this time of year too, or not just acquisition stuff, but, you know, trying to figure out whether they want to roll with some of their young players and kind of promote internally instead of, you know, acquiring a, a bat or an arm, um, you know, expand from their minor league system. And I want to know what the process is for an organization 
when it comes to ranking their young players? Because we always hear about the different publications that have their own rankings, right? Where Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis do MLB.com system. And then there's Fangraphs that has a whole list. And then there's Baseball Prospectus. And all these different sites have their own kind of prospect rankings. Does the organization have like their own that is like not secret, but you know, they, that, that they're not going to share with the public. Right. Uh, or, or just give me kind of a rundown on, on how that works in terms of, you know, organizational prospect rankings. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I've only had eyes on the one situation, mm-hmm. uh, but I think they all operate the same in the sense that, there are extremely smart people that can leverage everything that goes into a player's ascension to the major leagues. Um, and it's not just the stat sheets that you see on the internet, right? There's, there's more robust data sets. And then I think each organization values different things. You know what I mean? So like if just say hypothetically, an organization really values bat to ball skill. Uh, maybe they they place that ahead of damage or maybe they place damage ahead of bat to ball skill. But I think the organization basically forms an identity of like what is important to them. Um, what do they want the makeup of their major league team to look like? And then uh, building models off of that. Um, and then, yeah, it's obviously it's it's some training data, um, but also it's it's mainly in game data. You know, how does the athlete perform against opponents? Um inside of the data that are important to that organization that's how i would say organizations make whether it's their projections or um how they're going to value players so the 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 bigger entities right like mlb's rankings and um fan graphs rankings i would say it's a little bit of the same but again like those those entities probably have predictive models of what makes a valuable major leaguer and like, what are the things that are indicating that these players are going to get there? But we see it in college. You know, it's it's hilarious to me as we go through the recruiting process. You know, you've got your PBRs, you've got your Baseball Americas, and they and they rank players. And, you know, it's it's worth looking at. But sometimes I wonder, I'm like, is this just some dude behind a computer? That's just like, oh, throw this guy at number three. I would actually argue that's probably what it is. Um so I take at the college level, I take those with a little bit more of a grain of salt. Um, you know, like I just honestly, I I don't really care if PBR thinks that this player is the seventh best player in Nevada. Um, but at the major league level, that's how it works. Uh, and, and I would say I'm probably speaking for every organization it's yeah what does the organization value and what are the things that are predictive and then they they build a model around that yeah and and one thing that the guy sitting in his pjs at home in front of a screen can't do is kind of that smaller stuff that is beyond the box score like you mentioned and tyler and i actually had a a kid on um a kid he's my age uh, who just got drafted by the rays uh drew dowd i believe he got drafted in the 14th or 15th round by the rays and he had like a, you know, five year A, I think four or five year A coming out of Stanford. And it's like, you know, if you were sitting in a screen, you know, behind a screen, you wouldn't be able to see that the Rays like this slider and thought that they could, you know, maximize the slider more. But it's things like that. And I also want to mention, you know, as someone, you know, of your capacity who worked in player development and still do, um, do you think baseball should because I've heard Dan O'Dowd, who's former GM of the Rockies, who does a great job on MLB Network. He's talked about this before, about having like a reward system for players that do some of the fundamental stuff right. So, for example, Shane Bieber was a walk-on at Santa Barbara, uh, and he had great command, kind of average breaking stuff, and he was like 89 to 91 with this fastball. But he built the other stuff out. And Mookie Betts, a guy who had great plate discipline and contact skills coming out of kind of an unknown high school and then gets to the big leagues and develops power. So do you think like those skills, like the plate discipline and the command, they should kind of take more priority in baseball to improve the quality of play rather than just, Oh man, he throws 98, 99. We're mesmerized by this or, Oh my God, 110, you know, exit velo. Like, I feel like our, our priorities are kind of in the wrong place right now. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, that's uh, obviously like the million dollar question. So I'm going to hit you guys with actually something I'm working on right now. I'm working on like building out this, I, I guess I would call it somewhat of a presentation I'm going to give my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you guys this, like 
I know Tyler's answer to this, but have you guys ever played Mario Kart? It's been Absolutely. a while, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think generationally, we're at a place where almost every single person in the game of baseball has either played Mario Kart or they're like very familiar with Mario Kart. And I'm trying to make this argument that like coaching baseball or player development is exactly, it is exactly the same as the Mario Kart Ascension. So let me break it down for you. So like Mario Kart came out back in like 1992, 1993. And if you look at the first iteration of it, there's eight characters that you could play as. Um, there was 16 tracks, all very basic. And then the game, you know, evolved. So then the Nintendo 64 one came out and, you know, the maps were more robust. Uh, the graphics were better, you know, and now it's evolved into this deal where it's on the Nintendo Switch. There are so many tracks. They're so elaborate. There's now flight. Um, <clears throat> there's more weapons to choose from. You can customize your cart. So you can basically build your racer and the cart how you want to do it as the player. Um, okay, so here's what I'm getting at, though. So, like, as a coach, Mario Kart gets brought up by me and the players all the time. And then it's always like, oh, I'd, I'd kick your ass. You know, that's always what you say. Like, I, I'm, I'm better than you. So then you get the sticks and it's like, well, I'm better at the Nintendo 64 one. Or like, you know, for me personally, like I'm better at the GameCube one. Um, and that reminds me a little bit of baseball right now, where it's like the game has evolved so much. But a lot of the concepts that are existing right now, they're challenging. They're really challenging. Like the thought of communicating data and analytics to a player, especially one that maybe doesn't speak English, that is really hard to do as a coach. So what we do is we revert back to this Mario Kart thing of like, well, like I'm just better than Nintendo 64 one. Um, so here's what I would say to answer your question in conjunction with what I just said. The fundamentals that you probably learned on like the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo 64, they're important. Like you've got to have precision driving. Um, when you're in first place and you get the green shell, you have to know how to play defense with it. Um, when you're in second and third and you're catching somebody and you get a red shell, you have to strategically play offense with it. Um, but at the same time, it's growing. You know, there's a, there's a um, weapon now in the new one where it like inks people's screens and you have to like, you have to drive blindly. Right. So from a baseball perspective, it all matters is what I'm saying. Like you have to have the precision skills. You have to. Um, and if you're neglecting those as a coach, then you're doing your players a disservice. Uh, you have to have the basic fundamentals. Um, but if you turn a blind eye to the things that are happening, like right now in baseball, I would say the biggest, like lowest hanging fruit is motor preferences. It's like, it's understanding how your players naturally move and coaching them within those confines. Um, and it is also leveraging data. Um, so I just think right now we're in this really weird sticky point where it's like, you know, the game was so much better back in the day and like everything that's happening now sucks. Um, and I think about it, like as a coach, I think we're we're kind of like parents in a lot of respects. So think about it as a dad. Like, what if your kid ever said to you, like, yeah, you know, like I'm going to learn this new form of math, but like, I'm just not motivated because it's like, it's really hard. So I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to like, just stick to like regular division. You'd be like, no, dude, like, come on, push yourself. Um, and I think baseball as a whole, instead of pushing itself to leverage all of it, they're fighting. Everyone's fighting. They're like, they're categorizing themselves as new school or old school. And for me, I'm like, what gives us the best chance to win? That's like, that's really what I care about. And I think clubs are losing sight of that. And I, and I saw it in pro ball. I see it in college baseball. It's like, you know, we're going to be a team that plays small ball. Great. Or like, we're going to be a team um, that does a lot of damage. But you know what? Like, I think for us, if, if we go to San Diego State this year and the winds are blowing in, grip it and rip it. It's like, it's probably not going to work. We're going to have to find a way to manufacture runs. So that's like the red shell in second place. Um you know, and if we go to Air Force when we're playing at 7,000 feet, uh, there's the new weapon in Mario Kart where, like, when you're towards the back, like, you get this, like, the bullet, and it, like, just basically whacks everybody and gets you up, like, six or seven places. You got to be able to play that style, too. So, 
Um, I know I just went on a huge diatribe there, which was really weird, but like, I, I honestly think they're very similar in the sense that like, um, man, I, I think our priorities have to be aligned everywhere. Like if there's a competitive advantage that you can find, but you don't quite understand it, you can't turn your nose up to it. You have to learn it. And I tell our guys all the time, like, you got to be willing to suck at something to get good at it because you're never going to be good at it right away. So I remember going to the Brewers and like being introduced to TrackMan plots. TrackMan is very popular in baseball now. Mm-hmm. And I, I I got dominated. I didn't know what I was looking at, you know, but I think that's maybe a struggle in baseball. We all struggle with it as people, but like it's uncomfortable um, when there's something new and you suck at it. And like, I'll tell you right now, when I play Mario Kart on the Switch, I'm I'm awful but I was just, I was playing it last week and this is what made me think of it. It's like, man, I'm awful at it because like, I don't put the time in at it. Um, and I don't want to, because it's, it's hard. I like to play the double dash and like beat up on everybody, but that's not where we're at in society. I just finished my application to be on your coaching staff, by the way, carry on, <laughs> carry on. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, man. But, but yeah, so, you know, now you're obviously a head coach at a D1 college program. And uh, I know just as your friend, back when you decided that coaching was going to be your career, you said, you know, that's my goal. I want to be a D1 coach. And actually UNR is one of the schools you mentioned that you'd want to coach at. So now that you're there, uh, what's that experience been like? And then after leaving college for a little bit and coming back from pro ball, uh, was that transition back uh, difficult at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I've loved it, obviously, here at Nevada. Uh, We have an awesome administration. The facilities are taking huge increases over the next couple of years. Um, I think we're in a unique spot where we can recruit the entire country. We actually have an international player coming next year. So it's an incredible situation. And I think we can win at a very, very high level here. But to answer your question, going from pro ball to college baseball, it was hard for two reasons. One, College baseball has changed a ton in the last few years because there's now name, image, and likeness where players can get paid, and and that's a space you have to be active in. Um, And also the transfer portal exists. Players can transfer at no penalty one time in their career. And so, you know, there were 4,000 players in the transfer portal last year alone. I believe that was the number. So um, it was hard there. And then, again, kind of to what I had just talked about, I'm a beginner as a head coach in division one, you know, I was a, I was a successful NAI coach, but I had never been a head coach in division one and you learn on the fly and, you know, you can kind of get your ass kicked at times. And, and I think that's ultimately how you get better. Um, but I am really fortunate, like that this is a, this is a great situation where we are hugely supported by our administration we're hugely supported by our community. Um, but man, to answer your question, like, just college baseball alone has evolved so much in the time that I went to the Brewers and the time I returned, it's completely different. And I'm sure the numbers are a little like the, the analytics, the technology is different. What do you guys use in, in regards to that stuff? Is there TrackMan? Is there Rapsodo? Like what, what kind of information, you know, are, are, cause I mean, if they do get drafted, right, they, they have to prepare to receive a lot of information on a daily basis. So how is like, you know, your, your team kind of using that information to kind of prepare players? Yeah, for sure. So we we have TrackMan. Um, that's like probably the resource we use the most uh, for our pitchers and our hitters. It's just really good at delivering digestible ball flight data, whether it's batted ball data or pitch data. Um, which I think is the lens we try to communicate most with our players in is just like, Hey, however you reach the goal, whatever your swing looks like, whatever your delivery looks like, what is the ball doing? You know what I mean? Like if you hit a ball 105 miles an hour, I could care less what your swing looks like. Um, and if you can throw a ball 95 miles an hour with some accuracy, I don't really care what the delivery looks like. So we, we really do. We leverage track man the most, uh, but there's a lot of other things we use. Um, we use pulse. So it's a sensor on the arm to track throwing volume um, and, and other pieces of data that go in conjunction with like your throwing programs. Um, we use baseball cloud, true media to give our players um, data that is aligned with who we want to be as a program. So it's important, you know, that they're not looking at batting average and trying to measure themselves as a player. Cause we all have kind of learned that batting average is just such a flawed piece of data, but it's a great conversation starter. 
Um, so those those pieces of data are, uh, or excuse me, those platforms that deliver data are really good for us to um, communicate with players of like, you know, what does a successful player look like at this level? And then what's predictive of somebody going to pro baseball and being good? But to answer your question, like, it's really important to me that a player can leave our program, go to pro baseball, and then any piece of um, technology or data that would be introduced to them would not be novel. Like they would have experience with it. Also experience where they're like, they're good at leveraging it themselves. Like I don't, I don't want a player that always has to be told what track man data means. He should be able to look at a plot and be able to identify good, bad, or ugly, right? Um, so it is important to me that we leverage all of that stuff. And I think right now in college sports, um, college baseball in particular, uh, we're in a little bit of a race to like get the most stuff, get the most data, get the most technology. Um, but I think that stuff's being used to recruit kids. You know, it's like, hey, we have a pitching lab. Like that's the big thing right now in college baseball is pitching labs. And like, what do you have in there? Oh, we, you know, track man, edutronic cameras. Yeah, I mean, that's that should be in every bullpen in the country. That really should be. Like it's it's actually malpractice, in my opinion, if you don't have those things. If you don't know how the ball is coming off your hand and you don't know how the ball is flying, you're doing your player a huge disservice. But I think like the name of the game right now in college baseball is recruiting, you know, and so like teams are are getting a um a ton of stuff to represent like, hey we're going to use all these things to get you better, but I don't know like how good the application is across the board. I think it's getting better across the board, but um, yeah, man, at the end of the day, I want to make sure players leave the program and they're, they're able to go into pro ball and they're somewhat of a plug and play player that like, they know what they're looking at. They know how to leverage data um, and they don't have like a negative attitude towards technology. And uh, yeah, so kind of going back to you made a you actually gave us a great example when you were talking Mario Kart, but you, I know you like to find like kind of new or innovative ways to approach the game, uh, you know, that are, at least previously weren't always embraced, you know, by traditional baseball, you know, models. Uh, you know, from creating games and competitions within your practices to, you know, working with your players on things off the field, like sleep patterns. I know you, uh, you've been, you know, kind of looked at as someone with that kind of approach across the game. So uh, when did that curiosity to kind of push the envelope become a thing uh, for you? And then uh, without giving away any major, you know, inside secrets, what's maybe something that you've implemented that you're most proud of that is kind of off the beaten path? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I used to think it was a disadvantage becoming a head coach when I was 28. Um, I worked for Reggie Christensen at Sac State for three years, and he was a great mentor. Um, you know, but there was always a piece of me that like felt like maybe I was too young to be doing it, to being a head coach, like I wasn't ready yet. Um, and also, like, I was always a little worried that I had left Division One, maybe earlier than I should have. But where the curiosity came from is I was at a school with 300 students, uh, a high school level facility at the, at the time. Um, and like, honestly, just a lot of like resource challenges. And so I think in coaching or even major league baseball, shoot, like we saw, you know, you look at a team like the Rays versus the Dodgers, there's different resources there. And so I think sometimes people are given their resource situation and they'll use it as an excuse of why they're not good. Um, like, I always don't have the money, uh, or you try to find competitive advantages with what you have. So that's where my curiosity really started to strike a chord is like, you know, is there just a better way to do this? Um, is there a different way to do this is like the way that we've always coached players, the best way to do it. Um, and, and that's why, like, I'm actually now in hindsight, so glad I became a head coach so young because I was at a place that. I could freely experience uh, different things and, and experiment with things. And if it didn't work out, I wasn't going to lose my job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that that's a real fear that coaches get the higher you climb in the game is like, Hey, we're going to try to drive a new initiative, but understand that like, Hey man, if it doesn't work, um, it could cost people their jobs. So I was, I was glad that that happened. And so I would say the thing that I was the most proud of, and it's still a work in progress, but you know, I used to play fantasy football a lot and I just thought that fantasy football 
because again, kind of like Mario Kart, something like everybody's done and everybody like finds it to be enjoyable was like, what if we had fall ball similar to fantasy football where, you know, week to week there's, there's winners um, and there's things inside the week that happen that can uh, manipulate winning and losing. Cause you don't get to scrimmage a lot in uh, fall baseball anymore. Um, so what fall baseball usually has turned into is just like, Hey, let's go practice for three months and then we'll go on for Christmas and we'll see you in January. But I was like, what if we could find a way to make fall ball, you know, more competitive. And then on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, there's a winner at practice and there's losers at practice because, you know, we talked about sportsmanship. Like if you're presenting winning and losing every day at practice, like you have to exercise that we talk about being a good teammate. Well, if there's competitions that have winning and losing and teamwork every day, um, you get legitimate practice at that. So that's another thing. Um, but I, I'm just like proud of the fact that I think we found a way to take fall ball, something that's typically um, kind of monotonous. Uh, it turns into Groundhog Day a little bit and make it something where hopefully the kids are excited when they get the practice plan every day. Um, you know, one of the things I saw in recruiting a lot is the student athlete experience. And I think we found a way to make fall ball, um, fun and we found a way to make it not such a, such a grind. And we, we honestly follow the model of like Yahoo fantasy football. That's really cool. As, as I am currently in the process of being screwed by Yahoo fantasy football, it's good to hear that perspective. (laughs) Um, I want to go back to recruiting because, you know, I talked about this with um you know tony from san francisco state who we mentioned before we we went live here uh and i asked him about recruiting and like for a d2 program it's a lot different because like he's like oh yeah we love the d1 fallbacks right so that's you know that's a big thing for them and you know whenever they get someone who throws you know 95 97 which i think they now have uh, it becomes a big deal but as a d1 program it might be a little bit different trying to recruit and trying to pitch not just the school, but like the program as a whole. So what have been some of the challenges and, and, and that process of, of trying to recruit players? Yeah. Um, so I'd say the biggest challenge we face obviously is, is the NIL space. Um, and it's a space where I think we're growing, but it's also a space we understand that we are competing with, um, schools for the same players and those schools may have better resources. So we have to make the selling process a little bit different to the athlete. Um, but so, so that's been probably our biggest challenge that we face, but, um, you know, it, it's funny. The one thing I've noticed in division one baseball, particularly at the mid-major level is that, um, age is valuable. Um, like being an old team has a ton of value and young players can step up and be really good players. But I think, you know, having a, a young team, you know, like people talk about oh, our team's really young this year. I think that's a recipe for disaster at this level. I really do. Like if you're running out a bunch of freshmen and sophomores, um, no matter how good they are, they're competing against grown men. And I think since COVID, we've seen a lot of really old players in division one. Like we had a couple 24 year olds on our team last year. Our, um, you know, one of our best players this year is 23. Um, So no matter how good an 18 or 19 year old is, when they're competing against a 23-year-old who's had a ton of experience in Division One, it's tough. I mean, you think of like a rookie in Major League Baseball that's really talented, that's competing against a guy that's been in the big leagues for five, six years. Um, I just think like age is valuable in college baseball. So it's this tricky balancing act of like you find freshmen that are going to be good players and you find opportunities to get them on the field and expose them. Our, our freshman class this year is super talented. Um, but we also have to be strategic about their use too. Like we want to make sure they're in a position that they're going to develop, they're going to get reps, they're going to get better. Um, but they're not going to be thrown into a situation where they're like, you know, set up to fail either. Um, so we've had our most luck so far, um, with junior college players and also out of the portal, we've been able to like get some supplemented players out of the portal. We got, a shortstop from University of Pittsburgh last year, who was a really good player in the ACC um, because we needed that hole filled, you know? So I think for us, kind of like the major league model, it's like, Hey, let's identify what we're good at. Um, Let's see where we're deficient in those deficient areas where it's like, Hey, we need a plug and play guy. We're probably going to go portal or or junior college just because they're older and they have more experience. Um, But usually you try to put somebody underneath that player in a sense that is a freshman that's going to be really, really good. Because the thing I do like about freshmen 
is you're going to be with them for three to four years, sometimes five. Um, and, and I just trust like, hey, if they're with us for four years, call it, they're going to get better and they're going to be a really good player before they get out of here. But the tricky part, again, is with the portal is guys, guys can leave. You know, if they want to leave, if they don't feel like their playing time is sufficient enough, they can leave. Um, so, again, it's it's trying to keep guys um, set on the bigger picture. But there's certainly a lot of challenges. But, again, like like the Mario Kart thing, like I'm not going to complain about the portal. I'm not going to complain about NIL. Um, we just have to find ways to win within those confines. And I'm really glad that, glad that you brought up junior college because I, myself, am a JUCO product. Um, not baseball or anything, but but went through journalism, wrote for their newspaper at Skyline College in San Bruno. And Jesse Pierce, I don't know if you were mentioned. I don't know if that was the one you were mentioning, the 23-year-old, because I know he's up there in age. Um, but Jesse Pierce, one of your your top guys last year, uh, and I actually wrote a story about Jesse when he played in the Northwoods League um, and uh, that ended up turning out good. But that, by the way, Jesse Pierce is a, was a monster at Skyline College. Like, nobody would pitch to him. Eventually, I went to, like, three multi-homer games like every time i would go he would just homer twice he was amazing um but how, like finding players like that from junior colleges like how do you view that path of going to a juco because i know like when i go to like four-year universities i could kind of like figure out like that guy looks like he might have gone juco like it seems like there's an extra grittiness to them so how do you go about like managing trying to find them and, and bringing them to the program yeah. So, you know, and that is who I was talking about, Yeah, uh, about, you know, one of our best players being a 23 year old, like, so Jesse, uh, you're right. Jesse's a monster. He's a super, super talented player. Um, but Jesse's path is actually a path that I've become very attracted to as a coach. So, cause he's, he's called, what we call a four, two, four, meaning he went to a four-year school out of high school, back to a two-year school and then, and then back to a four-year school. Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to Arkansas out of high school. Um, you know, obviously one of the, if he's going there, he's one of the top ranked players in the entire country. And then he, um, uh, went to skyline, obviously tore it up. But the thing I like about those guys, cause you know, we have a few of them, another kid named Bryce Matthews went to Arkansas out of high school and now he's here at Nevada is they've experienced the highest level on paper of college baseball, like Arkansas is going to be in the top 10 in the country as it relates to facilities and as it relates to talent and as it relates to resources, they have everything, right? So they've experienced that. Um, and then they go to junior college, which, you know, that's in a sense of college baseball, it's like the lowest level. So they've seen these two extremes and then they come to a place like Nevada. And so the thing about Jesse is like, I just feel like Jesse approaches every day as a player with just like a ton of gratitude. He's one of our team captains, um, but he's just, he's always happy to be here. You know what I mean? And he's so grateful for the opportunities that he gets. He plays, he plays every day here. Um, you know, he's one of the best players in the mountain West. I, I, I mean, if he ends up being the player of the year in our conference, it would not shock me. Um, you know, so that path is interesting for me because it's like, hey, they've seen they've seen what it looks like at the highest level. They've been to the lowest level. So, you know, there's humility there um, because he made the decision to like, you know, go to Skyline and play. Um, and now he's here. So it's just like you get this like extremely polished and refined player, but also like the perspective they have is so great. Like he's not always looking for the greener grass on the other side. He, he kind of waters his grass where his feet are. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot of, you know, different theories and a little bit about the approach to building a team. So now we let's talk a, a little bit about the 2024 uh, Wolfpack team. You know, a lot of our listeners are mostly in Northern California. I know uh, the pack is going to San Francisco, Stockton, Sacramento and Fresno this year for some of their road series. So for this upcoming season, if some of our listeners are in those cities and they want to come out and see the the, the team play what's uh what should they expect how's the 2024 team looking i'll be at the sf one. Oh, nice okay so i um you know as, as people know last year was somewhat of a rebuild year um so when i got the job on july 5th that you know we had 13 players on our roster three of which pitched so i was like oh my god we got to build a whole team in six weeks um so i just think as it relates to overall talent on the roster we're so much better um and you know 
we haven't played a game yet, but from what I can see, I, I don't think that there's an area where we're like grossly deficient. Um, you know, from a starting pitching perspective, I think we have a good combination of velocity stuff and command. Um, and it's, it's wide open, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, Tuesday, like who's going to win those spots. But the one thing I know is it's going to be some like pretty good arm, arm talent coming, um, coming on the mound. And then offensively, um, you know, like it's, it's a really dynamic offensive group in two respects. One, I think we have a lot of power. I think we should have a lot of guys that are, you know, double digit home run threats, but also like team speed is, is incredibly improved. And that was a huge weakness of us last year is like, you know, you hit a single and you feel like you kind of got to go station to station just because there's not, not great speed, but I think the team is very fast. Um, but overall, I would say it's kind of like, running a, um, like a spread offense, you know, like I, th I think it's a kind of personnel that if we have to get involved in a small ball type game, because, you know, the conditions aren't good for us to do damage. Um, I think we have the personnel to do it. I think there's enough speed, there's enough barrel control guys can bunt. Um, we'll play good enough defense. And then I think, um, on the other side of it, you know, if we get involved into a slug fest, I think we have the personnel to navigate that. So I think our home run record here is like 87 home runs. Um, and I, we broke our strikeout record last year on the mound. Um, and so I'm hoping we break our previous strikeout record, but also I think our home run record, I don't, I don't think it's safe by any means. It's going to be a, a tough feat, but I just think, again, it's, it's a well-rounded club. Um, like any team in the country, we have to stay healthy. Um, but the thing I do feel a little bit better about is like depth is in a better spot that, Hey, if there's an injury or two, I don't think it will like derail our season, which I, I think last year it kind of did. All right. So it sounds like you guys are ready to play the the green shells when the wind's blowing in, in San Diego and the giant bullet when you're at elevation. That's right. I mean, there's uh there's different options and I'm probably going to make this Mario Kart analogy to our kids when they come back, because uh, yeah, we got to be able to do it all, you know? And like, if there's a new tool that can help us, like you can't just say like, ah, we don't want to look into that. Cause like we have something that works because what worked for you yesterday, it may not, may not work for you today. Yahoo! <laughs> um, and then to, to wrap it up, this is our last question. And we have a little game for you at the end, if you're down, but um. <laughs> You know, like like most baseball programs, you know, UNR has an annual fundraiser dinner to help build the program. Uh, this year, the 39th annual Bobby Dolan baseball dinner is up in Reno in January. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that event, what it means to the program, how folks can get tickets. And then I think there's, you know, like we mentioned, a lot of Northern California listeners. I think you have a special guest that some folks might be interested in checking out. Sure. So I'll get right to that. Special guest this year is Hunter Pence. So every year we have, uh, you know, a keynote speaker that is very interactive with the, with the fans. Um, so Hunter Pence is our guy this year, and I was so stoked that we got him um, because I just think he connects with all generations. He was a tremendous giant. He helped him win World Series. Um, and he's just, a, he's a grinder. Like he's a guy that, again, like he went to junior college and he played at a mid-major and ended up turning himself into a great big leaguer. So I think he's going to be awesome. And I think he has an affinity for Reno itself. Um, so he'll be our special guest, but you know, a little history on this event, which I find so fascinating. And I tell people all the time when I talk to them about this is that back in the 1980s, the university of Nevada had decided to cut baseball. It was going to be eliminated as a sport. Um, and the community basically said no. Um, and so there's the, the Dolan family here in town and, and they're one of the, the greatest families in Reno, but they basically put on this event with the community and the former head coach, Gary Powers, um, called the Bobby Dolan Dinner. And the Bobby Dolan Dinner that first year featured Tommy Lasorda, and they were able to raise money to essentially save the program. So if it wasn't for this community, if it wasn't for this dinner, if it wasn't for the Dolans, I wouldn't be sitting here and we wouldn't have baseball in Nevada. We wouldn't have this incredible stadium and this incredible fan base. It would just be nothing. So I always tell people like the history behind this event is important and it does allow us to operate on a day-to-day -day level, but the event has evolved. Um, it's, it's huge. Uh, last year, I think we had about four or 500 people. I'm, I'm assuming this year we'll have five or 600 people. I mean, it is a massive event. Um, but you know, we've all been to banquets before with like the bad chicken and like the, the dry potatoes. It is not that, I mean, this is a legit spread. Uh, the food is unbelievable. Um, the entertainment value is unbelievable. Um, 
and and the opportunity to like interact with the speaker i think is uniquely good at this event so a lot of times at these events the keynote speaker you know shows up right when they have to speak and they bounce they don't talk to anybody that's not how this one goes like the speaker at this event like talks to our team talks to the fans um and our they don't give a speech like other events it's more of like a fireside chat where there's a moderator asking questions um and they answer the questions and then people in the crowd can ask the speaker questions so um it's just a really really like while the scale of the event is large it's actually pretty intimate um and and every fan there like i remind them hey without this like Nevada baseball wouldn't exist. So it's a really cool event. Like I said, uh, January 18th, um, it's at the row here in Reno, um, at the ballroom. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be awesome. That's really awesome. Where can, uh, where, where should people go for tickets if they're interested? Yeah. NevadaWolfpack.com and just click on the baseball site. It'll be the lead story. Um, and you can buy tickets there. Um, also, you know, people can, can certainly, Email me with any questions, Jake McKinley at unr.edu or just our baseball account, baseball at unr.edu. Um, both of those things will uh, also, you know, if, if anybody wants to go to the event, has questions or you know, struggles or whatever, they, they can reach out to us because uh, we don't want this to be an exclusive event either. We want this to be as inclusive as possible. Um, and we've already seen since Hunter Pence has been announced as our speaker, our ticket sales are, are way up. We'll be sure to uh, put all of that in in the description of this this podcast everywhere it goes out. Um, and and Tyler mentioned that there's a little game that we do with guests. We call it the Speedy Shutdown. Uh, and you know you can answer these quickly. You can take your time. It, it doesn't matter. There's five questions. The first one is if you could trade places with any player in today's game, who would it be? Loaded again. Yeah. I, I... I'm going to sound shallow, but Otani. Okay. Um, and, and only make 2 million a year for the next 10 years. <laughs> I don't know how I'll survive, but um, yeah. I mean, a two-way big leaguer that's like actually good at both things. Like I would just be a fascinating world to live in. Like I can't even wrap my head around it. Like they're both of those things are so hard and he's a lead of both. It's crazy. All right. Number two, I have an idea of what some of your answers might be because we can have uh, full conversations with some of these, but funniest movie of all time. <laughs> um, MacGruber, I would put like potentially number one. I just thought like the satire value is just so good. Um, the original Naked Gun, when he's umpiring in the baseball game is just, uh, it's just lights out. It's one of those things that like, it gets funnier the more I watch it and I've watched it so many times, but love Naked Gun. Um, and it's, God, I remember my first year at Menlo, we uh, we had like a pizza party and we watched Naked Gun. None of the players had ever seen it. And they thought the umpire scene was was so funny. So I'd say those two. God, Step Brothers too. I mean, come on. Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, Tyler always gives me a hard time about movies I have and haven't seen, but he'd be yeah. pleased to know that I have seen MacGruber. So, and Naked Gun for uh, a matter too. So, ah, yes, yes, happy to help. yes. Uh, question three if, if you could watch any player you've never seen play, who would it be? Um, so I, I never saw Nolan Ryan, and you know, in this, in this whole world of like the game used to be better and like the radar guns today are loaded and all that, I just want to see what it looks like. Um, he like Nolan Ryan. It, it it's like he's not even a human. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the guy pitching to like his late forties. I'm 39 right now, and the thought of like pitching in six years from now, the thought of pitching today, I feel like I'd end up in the hospital. <laughs> um, but I would love to see like 40 year old Nolan Ryan like pumping upper 90s. I think that would be like insane to see. All right, uh, number four. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Ooh, um, I would say invincibility and not to be like a creep. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th I think I could like potentially access some pretty sweet places. <laughs> I, I feel like I shouldn't talk through that one anymore. People might cancel me. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I thought you said invincibility. I was like, oh, that's a oh, good one. 
<laughs> oh, invisibility. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. Invincibility would lead you to like a, an undefeated year at uh, Nevada. So, well, shoot, maybe I will trade up for that then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question. And I'm going to replace the one that we have on here with the customized one. What is your favorite Tyler Hall moment or memory? Hmm. There's a lot. Tyler um, didn't know about this one. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I brought this up on a different potty the other day, but uh, yeah, going skydiving. Um, and I actually botched the story. So Tyler and I had made these lists. They were called 28 before 28, where we, you know, we had like 28 things we wanted to accomplish before we turned 28 years old. And uh, skydiving was, I, I, it may have been number one on our list, but I had told him, you know, like I want it to be spontaneous. I don't want like a lot of time to think about it. So he had called me the night before and, um, you know, recommended we go to like Davis the next day. And I'll never forget this, like actually having the conversation with them. Um, so we had the option of Davis, California or Lodi, California. And the jump in Lodi was a hundred dollars cheaper, but it was kind of like, remember like the Walmart smiley face that would like hit like a price and like knock it down. <laughs> Like, we don't want, like, the rollback discount skydive. You know, like, I want the designer Louis Vuitton skydive. I don't I don't want the the cheap one. It just felt sketchy. So we went to Davis, and, um, you know, it was one of those things. Like, had I gone alone, I probably would have found a way to, like, back out of it. But, like, you're just, you're there with someone you're close to. You're there with your friend. And so you just, like, you see it through. And I remember um, he was just, like, whether it was real or a facade, but he was just like so calm and just seemed like he was ready to go. And I was like, well, I got to match that energy. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, that was an incredible day. Um, and I'd also say the other one was just like, we were on a bowling team together for a few years. And um, that was just like, we started joking around that like, so our bowling league was called Hump Day Trio. So Hump Day was Wednesday and Trios was a team of three. So it was me, Tyler, and another guy named will um that we called the big c and tuesdays we would joke like it was like christmas eve because wednesday was just like the greatest day of the week when we got to like bowl from nine to midnight in competitive leagues so um so yeah that's the uh i'd say those those ones stand out right there uh, yeah, yeah i like but, how there, there's only one reason like there's no reason to go to lodi and if skydiving is that reason then that's pretty rough so good decision yeah, yeah. I, th I think we talked about you know if, if our lives are on the line it's not really something we want to bargain shop for um, no but but also funny story on that is like right when we got done skydiving for the first time we're like we need to do this again and it, both of our dads had a birthday coming like two weeks later so like oh we should go skydiving with our dads so Jake went to his dad and said, Tyler's dad is in if you're in. And I went to my dad and said, Jake's dad is in if you're in. And neither of them wanted to be the one to like say, no, I don't want to do that. So they both went skydiving with us like three weeks later. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, again, great experience there, too. That's incredible. That's incredible. I think, Tyler, did you take out your dad on the landing? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. They they landed first. My dad took forever to pull his chute. So I jumped before my dad, but he ended up landing first. And then the grass where we were landing was all slick. And so we came in and they were just right in our path, but I slid like 60 feet. And like, I just saw it coming in slow motion. And I just <laughs> took my dad's legs out from under him. He landed on my head. My neck was sore for like a week and a half after that. But yeah, took out the old man skydiving. Why are you taking forever to, to pull the chute though? Like that's, he did. He took forever. So he, oh, okay. I was, I was out of the plane first and he landed before me because he took forever. They actually turned me. They're like, Oh, there's your dad. And I was like, shouldn't he pull his shoot by now? They're like, yeah, he should. And then finally, like he found it and pulled it. Like, shit, 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 shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He wanted to experience more of a free fall. I get it. Yeah. Just get to the bottom. That's the yeah. first thing I do when I get out of the plane. Like I, I'd pull it within seconds of me jumping. <laughs> Gosh. But yeah, you know, Jake, thank you for all the time. We appreciate it. We know you're you're busy getting ready for the season and the the Bobby Dolan dinner. Um, so thank you for your time. Anytime. Happy to be here. Yeah, and and you can find Jake on, I guess we'll call it X. We'll we'll keep it official at, at McKinley Jake 12. You can follow the Nevada baseball program on X at Nevada Baseball or on Instagram at Nevada BSB. And mm. yeah, and everybody could, of course, follow the podcast, too, on Twitter at Shutdown underscore inning and get us on Spotify, YouTube. We, we've gotten some new fans. Our last episode did pretty good. There's like 5000 people that 
tuned in. So that's like insane. Oh, yeah. Love that. Love <laughs> so, it. Yeah, it's just out of the blue. Like we always we always joked around how it's like, hello, everybody to two of you. But now it's like a lot of Dodger people listening, apparently. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks to the new listeners. Glad you enjoyed it. Appreciated the yeah. feedback. And yeah, thank Who you. We're now going to go send their kids to Nevada because they hear Nevada has a great Mario uh, presence with their baseball team. So we do. We do. Yep. Fair enough. Well, thanks, Jake. Uh, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep enjoying your holidays. New Year's Eve still to come. Uh, New Year's Day still to come. And see you next time. That's what's up. Bye-bye.